1: While it's easy to get carried away by early results, the college basketball season is much more of a marathon than a sprint. Regardless of how you get there, the goal for every team is to play your best when the calendar turns to March. That certainly seems to be the case for the Gators, as Mike White's team is heading into the final month of the year with a head of steam and a much rosier outlook for the postseason. On today's show, we'll discuss the streaking hoop squad, a possible change to the football schedule, baseball's continued dominance over Miami and a couple of SEC championships with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Then, with her Gator career coming to a close, we'll discover how women's basketball sharpshooter Naka Nakasoglu went from Australia to Utah and finally to Gainesville. But first, it wasn't always pretty, but men's basketball continued their late season surge this past week with a gritty home win over Missouri, followed by a dominant effort on the road against Vandy. So as we open this week's roundtable, we asked Chris where this Gator team came from.
2: Five-game SEC winning streak, Adam is the longest for this team since they won eight in a row uh, two years ago. There's just a cohesiveness and a, an a, a element of chemistry that has come about this team in the, last, uh, in the last few weeks. They hand a credit to a couple guys, obviously, on the team. One is Kavarius Hayes. Um, he's the leader of the team. If you go back a couple of weeks, it was that the day after coming back from Tennessee, Florida had a day off. And I remember I, I ducked in there to uh, see if there were any coaches in there. I didn't see any coaches in there, but Baris Hayes called a team meeting. And I know team meetings could often be cliched, but uh, he had guys come in there and the team sat down and talked about some things. And, uh, you know, sometimes those things work. Sometimes they don't. Uh, for all I know, they had a team meeting earlier in the season when they were struggling. Whatever happened that day, um, that's five straight wins. They have a chance to make it six when they play Georgia this weekend at home. But Cavarius is kind of like the lifeblood of the team behind the scenes and certainly when it comes to defense and communicating both in the game and on the sidelines. Having said that, as much as a leader as Cavarius Hayes is and has been for quite some time for this team, it may be Andrew Nemhart's team. Uh, this guy's a freshman, but he doesn't play like one. He is taking his offense to a new level just by working on it. People criticized him, I think, earlier in the season, certainly social media-wise, for being slow. He's not a slow basketball player. He plays with pace. That's why the NBA scouts love him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's thinking uh, uh, two and three moves ahead. He sees the entire court. Now what he's done uh, in upgrading his uh, skill set when it comes to shooting the ball. This is all him and Mike White working on it together after practice. If you look at it, I believe he's made 24 out of his last 32 shots in this five-game winning streak. That's 75%. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention – Go back to Kavarius Hayes and say during the five-game winning streak, he hit 14 of 18 shots. That's almost 78%. And 15 of 19 free throws, that's almost 80%. Wow. This is a guy who came in the season below 60% all time in his free throw shooting. So there's development going on. There's improvement going on. There's chemistry going on. There's confidence going on. Five straight wins, three of them on the road. Now you play two of your last three games at home one against Georgia team, which is next to last in the conference. Nothing to be taken for granted there. Florida went up there and uh, Georgia gave them a tussle. Uh, Tom Creon has them playing very, very well right now. They've lost their last four games, uh, all one possession games, all against teams that are probably going to be in the NCAA tournament. There's nothing given about that game Saturday night, but what is given right now is Florida knows what it's doing in terms of how it's supposed to play right now, and the uh, effort level it's supposed to give, the energy it's supposed to give, and something I've said the last couple weeks, there are now defined roles. The rotation has uh, has been cut. They're playing with like eight guys, maybe every now and then nine, but there's a defined rotation, defined roles within the team, and that's something that sometimes just takes longer to play out, especially when halfway through the season you decide you're going to play the rest of the year with three freshmen starting.
1: The thing about Wednesday's game that I found interesting is that just had trap written all over it. If you look at where Vanderbilt is, having not won a game in the conference, the historical difficulties of playing at Memorial Gym, and the way that Florida came out and just blew the doors off almost instantaneously, Chris, I think it shows a maturity that wasn't there before. I'm curious if you think the maturity is because of those seniors stepping up, or does the maturity come? from the freshmen growing into their roles and having a little more confidence?
2: Well, I mean, let's talk to the, the seniors first. Cavarius, yes, he'd never won in there. Kavon is not a guy who's going to talk, so Kayvon probably didn't even know they'd never won there. Andrew Nemhard is a person who went in there and didn't care that they'd never won there. And I was at the shoot-around yesterday. Mike White called him in the middle of the, of the court and explained to the team. I mean, obviously a bunch of guys already knew, but he said, he, he goes, that's where we sit over there. That's where I'm going to stand right there. He goes, this isn't like any other place that you're going to play in. It's a little different. The stands are sunk in. He goes, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. He, he went on and explained. He goes, I've never won in here. These coaches have never won in here. These seniors have never won in here. It has nothing to do with right now. Now, some people might shy away from talking about it. He went right He went right at him about it. It has, nothing, it has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with the gym. It has nothing to do with anything other than how you play. And in terms of Andrew Nembhardt, I go back to, I was in the lobby of the, the team in Arkansas, the second game of the season, and he's walking around with Noah Locke, and they're really inseparable at times because they're roommates. Uh, we got on an elevator together. We're going up. I said, uh, good luck, guys. So I go, this is a passionate fan base in there, so that place is going to be crazy. And Andrew and MR looks at me, he goes, we're passionate too.
1: <laughs>
2: and so there isn't anything that phases him, I don't think. And uh, I think... Going back to the original point, as much as it is anything, I think how they played Wednesday night is a testament to Andrew Nemhard's taking the bull by the horns. He hit the first shot of the game. He ended up seven for eight, 19 points. He was spectacular. Didn't get a bunch of assists. Didn't need them. Just ran the team. And, uh, again, go back to this. The last team to win at Vanderbilt was the 2014 team that went 21 and 0. This is the first double digit win by a Florida team there since 2011 the last time or excuse me when the Gators won the SEC there with Chandler Parsons so uh quite a showing up there granted Vanderbilt's not a good team this year they're 0-15 now in the league but that was a mental hurdle for some guys uh on that team to get over I don't think it was for Andrew Nimhardt I don't even think it entered his mind he's not thinking about too much stuff he's not cluttering his head he's thinking about the process right in front of him
1: well if you we look at the bigger picture now because of that I mean I know that because you're so entrenched with the team, you're really stuck in that next game mindset. But if you look at the bracketology, Florida does seem to be in a pretty good place right now, largely because of that win at LSU. If you look at the various bracketology that's out there, they're anywhere from a nine to a 10 seed. So they seem to be in a pretty good position. What do you think they need to do at this point to make sure they are in the tournament?
2: It's funny how you mentioned me being around the team. When Mike White was asked about a very similar question after the game. He goes, "I'm not much of a big picture person." He goes, "I'm thinking about playing well the first four minutes against Georgia." <laughs> and just think about this second note: Florida two and a half weeks ago it was 12 and 11. They beat Georgia Saturday. They'll be 18 and 11. And that number 18 is a is a pretty good number when it comes to those uh, resumes being passed to the NCA. Not to get too far ahead, but yes, then LSU comes in. That's a chance for another quad one and on a senior night, which should be, uh, I believe, the game sold out. It should be a pretty pretty exciting um atmosphere even though it's going to be a spring break here and you're talking about if, if you could possibly protect home court the last two games of the season now you now you got 19 wins and you probably should feel pretty good pretty good about yourself but um just in terms of late season playing well three straight road wins the right people are starting to take notice as long as florida doesn't start thinking that collectively they got something figured out because they haven't they're just playing better because of the things i, t- I talked about earlier and uh uh if they hold serve at home i don't even think it's a discussion i think saturday night is a, is a very big win because I, mean, I i just think 18 is is a good looking number when you play one of the hardest schedules in the in the country and certainly in the southeastern conference and uh given what happens late in the season cuz they don't put as much weight on late season as at least they say they don't i think they do and uh that would be a something the tournament selection committee i think looks more favorably on than people think
1: we talked last week about the reunion and the honoring of the silver anniversary of the uh, 1994 final Four team that, that really got the tradition of florida basketball to the next level so chris that was this past weekend what was it like bringing them all back together
2: guys came from all over craig brown came from china that was really really cool you, and i think of the, the the way the game played out against missouri was appropriate because of course everyone knows or everyone that was around back then knows that that 94 that 93 94 team's motto was find a way and there's florida down by 12 in the second half and not playing well at all. I think they were going through a little of that stuff that maybe I referenced um, just a couple seconds ago, just talking about maybe thinking they got some things figured out, having won those two big road games, come home, comfortable. Missouri's not very good. Well, that's that's just not how it works. Florida found a way to win the game, chipped back a little. It wasn't a spectacular game by any stretch, but they started whittling away, whittling away, and ended up winning a game. And uh, as far as those uh, – those guys on the silver anniversary, it's just something to see them out there. Some of them, a bunch of them had gray hair. Uh, Demetri Hill didn't look that much different to me, actually. They're sitting there watching that highlight tape. And you wonder, this, this is the first team. And um, I think I made a point in the story. I go, they, they didn't find a way back then. They showed the way for Florida basketball. And I think they appreciated how they were appreciated last week they had a reception friday night they had something before the game and they had something really nice after the game where long kruger did a video and did some reflections on that they did that up in the exact deck arena in one of the rooms so i went up and uh, bounced around a little bit said hello to the, some of those guys and uh, they all seemed like they had a really good time and they were really looking forward to going out after that game maybe going to uh, have a few beverages dan cross and craig brown says we haven't really gotten to the storytelling part yet so i guess they probably had a pretty good time that night and certainly uh coming back and seeing them all together again because they, they, they said even though they have a message group that they, maybe they hadn't been in touch a whole lot over the past few years so that reconnection was probably a really cool thing for them and um the people that watched that video of the of the highlights of that year uh, good little history lesson and this guy's got a, a nice uh, round of applause and we're able to take a, a bow and the in the arena, granted, an upgraded version of the arena. I know they were all impressed with what it looks like now versus what it used to. But uh, um, a nice moment for those guys, and they certainly deserved it.
1: Let's turn our attention to uh, football for a second. We haven't talked football in a couple weeks. There wasn't any news to report. But this week, there is. So, Scott, can you tell us about uh, Florida-Miami kicking off the season maybe a little sooner than anticipated?
3: Yeah, you know, a uh, story broke this week that there's a talk that Florida and Miami are going to move up their season opener in Orlando at Camping World Stadium from August 31st to a week earlier, August 24th. And once the news got out there, both schools and ESPN released a statement. ESPN approached both schools back in December. So this isn't a total surprise, obviously, from the people involved, about changing the date of that game, moving up uh, in, as part of the—it's a 150-year anniversary of the start of college football, and ESPN— is obviously going to make a big deal of that. And there's even an organization that unbeknownst to me that exists today that I've never heard of, the college football 150 committee. They're part of this. So the reasoning is that, you know, college football season opens Labor Day weekend, but by approaching Florida and Miami, obviously a premier historic rivalry, moving that game up earlier, they could, you know, they would have the spotlight all to themselves on a Saturday night in Orlando, national TV. So both schools considered it. But to make this official, the NCAA has to approve it. And that is what the joint announcement was uh, late this week about, you know, they don't know. They expect a decision soon, I would think, within the next week. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, either way, it's going to – they're still playing in Orlando. They're still playing at Camping World Stadium. Is it going to be August 31st, or August 24th? If it is August 24th, it'll be the earliest uh, that either school has ever started uh, the season. So there's a little historical uh, significance in that regard, too. And, of course, it would also give three, each school three bye weeks because this season already has two bye weeks filled in. So that would be a first. I think the big question is whether the NCAA is going to approve, because to have this game, you know, these both of these schools are going to have to start practice a week earlier. So you're probably going to have other schools, hey, you know, we don't think that's right, or there's going to be some opposition. Ultimately, the NCAA is going to have to make the decision, and that's what everyone's waiting on.
1: Speaking of Florida and Miami, uh, that was the baseball matchup this past weekend. And, Scott, while Florida has struggled so far mightily in their midweek games, they're taking care of business in those series and didn't get off to a great start against Miami, but finished strong and ultimately took uh, another series in what's become a a very one-sided rivalry.
3: Yeah, you know, you spoke of midweek games, Adam, and I was at one this week that I didn't know if it was ever going to end. It was over (laughs) four hours, 13 pitchers, 23 hits, 21 runs a grand slam, somebody stole home, a couple of wild pitches. So, yeah, those midweek games are tricky. But what's not been tricky in recent years is Miami and Florida, when they meet on the diamond, uh, the Gators have really dominated that series. And, you know, a big early season test for Kevin O'Sullivan's team, the Hurricanes came up in the second weekend series of the season. And, and they took the first game to extend Florida's losing streak to three. And, you know, the Gators started off 3-0, then they lost three in a row. At least among the fans, there was some antsiness and, uh, but the Gators did come back and win those last two games, then went over to Jacksonville, uh, before the midweek game that I just mentioned against UCF, which they lost. But ultimately, any time you get a chance to play Miami, uh, early in the season, like they have over the years, it's, it's usually a good gauge. And Miami had dominated this series. Florida has totally reversed that trend under Kevin O'Sullivan and, and take a two out of three, I think gave gave this team some confidence the big moment in the series was in game two on Saturday night Florida was down the offense was still struggling and Will Dalton comes up with the bases loaded and if you follow the Gators baseball team Will Dalton you know a lot of people would probably love to see him come out for football because he kind of he kind of plays baseball the way you need to play football but he just he he goes in head first man he's a very intense kind of guy and uh he gets up there and uh, unloads a triple to, to give the Gators a lead, clear the bases, and, and that really swung the momentum into Florida's favor. You could see the confidence of the team at that moment just rise. And then on Sunday, they came back and, and led from start to finish to take the series. And they went over to Jacksonville, won an x rings, but they lost to UCF at home midweek. Yeah, now they have Winthrop coming in this weekend, so another chance for them to perhaps you know rack up a few wins. And, you know, and listen to Chris talk about the basketball team this year. I think there's some of that going on with baseball. You, it's a young team. They're going to have their ups and downs. I think, you know, they're only about 20% into the season. So there's, there's a lot to go, but early indications are, you know, they're just, there's going to be some peaks and valleys. And the big question in, in baseball is, can you be playing your best, you know, come May and June when it really matters? Uh, kind of like the basketball team is doing right now. In February, going into March.
1: You know, while some sports like baseball uh, are still a few weeks away from starting SEC play, uh, this past weekend we saw big SEC championships won by both the men's track team, the indoor, and then, of course, men's swimming and diving as well. And, you know, Scott, those are teams that are constantly adding championships to the ledger, where that's part of what makes Florida so unique is all of those sports that don't get as much attention that are still really uh, racking up a lot of hardware.
3: They are, and for you know, for the track team, it's become very common from Mike Holloway's program over the recent years to uh, to rack up these indoor titles. That was his fourth one, I think, since 2010. And I mean, if you if you follow the Gators, even if you you know you don't follow track, for instance, which I know a lot of our listeners probably don't, you probably by now heard the name Grant Holloway. Uh, This guy is going to he's kind of like Caleb Dressel in swimming the past few years, or or when Jeff Dimps was here as a sprinter, uh, one of these athletes that he's a crossover guy. Uh You're going to hear about him at the Olympics in 2020. You're going to hear about him in, on the pro circuit probably after this season concludes, leading up to those Olympics. But Grant Holloway, he's a phenomenal athlete. I would say it's pretty safe to say right now if you just said who's the best athlete on campus, I'd probably go with him. He won the 60-meter dash, which he recently broke Jeff Demp's school record that stood for seven years. Uh, he won that SEC indoor title in the 60-meter dash, the 60-meter hurdles, and the long jump. And what makes that so unique, it's, it's very rare for an athlete who competes in his sports to mix those three. He was only the second uh, athlete in SEC history to do that. I think the first one in 20-some years. Uh, this guy is just a phenomenal athlete. He's I mean, he scores enough points where the Gators are going to be in contention uh, at all their meets, you know, coming up in the outdoor season as well, just from his score. I mean, that's how good he is. Big moment for him. Big moment for Mike Holloway and his team. And you spoke about the other teams on campus swimming. Yeah, the men. First season under Anthony Nesty as head coach. If you, if you know much about the Gator history of swimming, Anthony Nesty is a, a former Gator swimmer, a longtime assistant coach under Greg Troy. And they go up uh, to Athens last week, and, and there was some talk that their string of six in a row might be over that maybe they didn't have a deep enough team. Well, guess what? They had a deep enough team. They won their seventh consecutive SEC uh, men's championship, and the women under Jeff Popple in his first season, uh, they finished second, which was their best finish in eight years. So you're talking about uh, you know, it was big news over the summer when Greg Troy stepped down, and And one of the things Scott Strickland did with the swimming program, he broke it up into two where Anthony Nessie took over the men and Jeff Popple took over the women. And in year one, it certainly seems to pay dividends when you have, you know, the men winning the SEC championship and the women finishing runner-up. And you're going to see, I think, uh, some athletes from these programs do well at the NCAA uh, finals coming up next
1: month. For this week's PAT, I was inspired by uh, a story I saw yesterday about some of the Challenges Major League Baseball is going through with the Players Association as they try and create new ways to make the game shorter and speed it up. Right, so their compromise was that they're saying they're going to get rid of the pitch clock now, but what they want to do is they want to limit pitching changes. They want to say you can't come out a minimum. I think it was of three batters you have to face in between changes. Then they talked about reducing the time in between innings, which would cut down on warm ups. And of course, any kind of change is objected to by the Players Association because they refuse to evolve, and they think it'll change the game, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious for you guys, two old school guys, what do you think are some ways that Major League Baseball can shorten the games and make them more palatable to today's audience that do not have a significant impact on the game itself?
2: Yeah, I thought it was funny when they... They were trying to speed up the game a couple of years ago when they passed the rule to, um, to get rid of the, the throwing the pitches for the intentional walk. Just tell the guy to go to first base or whatever. I mean, I don't know how much time that saved, but, uh, I mean, I, I think anything that speeds up the game relative to pitching changes is something that would, that would be good. Obviously, I'm a Nationals fan and I, I really like Matt, Matt Scherzer. Matt Scherzer doesn't want the pitch clock. Um, I don't think he needs one because he works fast. Uh, I like those pitchers that work fast. I mean, I, Anything that speeds that part of the game up. I don't know how radical you could get in terms of, I saw, you, you see some things about how they're toying with the idea of what you, you have to pitch to three batter, a three batter minimum or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know if you can do that. Maybe you could do it in the, uh, after the seventh inning or something like that. But, uh, to me, the pitch clock makes the most sense. There's just too much time. And then you have such a discrepancy because between some of these guys that take so long between pitches. Maybe uh, also, uh, you know, limit the throws to first. I mean, those things can get ridiculous at times, and uh, stolen bases is an exciting play. With all that sitting around, there's, there's a lot of baseball time that doesn't have a lot of exciting plays, and stolen base gives you one. So anything to, uh, to make that part of the game move a little bit, I would be in favor for. I know Scott will probably have a way more informed
3: opinion than I would because uh, he's a seam head. I would not call myself a seam head, but I do – I love baseball. I love the its history. Uh, I do not like the current model of Major League Baseball. It's uh, it's not fun. I, I, I go along with what Chris said there. It, it, here's where it comes down to me. I mean, guys do work too slow. So I'm okay with the pitch clock. I mean, all, and I, I don't know. I may have mentioned this here before or certainly in conversation with my buddies about baseball. All you just go back on YouTube and watch some clips from live games from the 90s and 80s and just look how fast everything moves compared to watching a game at home today I mean these guys it's always been a number sport and that's part of what makes baseball so appealing for fans but it's it's overloaded now I think a lot of what's going on too is there's a lot of uh, information sharing going on during games between people behind the scenes in the front office to the manager and he that takes longer to relay to the field, to the players, through signals and to pitchers, to, you know, it's just backed up the game. I mean, you need to just let those guys go out there and play. I mean, you got, you know, I understand the strategy of the game, but I just think in baseball, you got to do something with that where the time element matters. One of its, I guess, the uh, appealing facts is there's no clock, but I think there's time. It's come to a time where we need to start thinking about putting some time on this stuff because, I mean, you're, you know, four-hour baseball games. I mean, who likes those? I know I don't. Mm-hmm. I like uh, when's the last time you saw a game, like in two hours, like where both teams play real clean, the pitching's great, uh it's a two-hour game, it was entertaining the whole time. I mean, those are a thing of the past. I mean, if you get a game now under three hours and 15 minutes, that's like speed baseball. And of course, in the Sunday night ESPN games between the Yankees and And Red Sox, you're going to watch those. You might as well plan to skip work on Monday morning because they're going to run past midnight. (laughs) What I like about this is that fans have been talking about this for a long time. The media certainly has. Now I notice Rob Manfred, the Major League Baseball Commissioner, he seemed to have a really stronger voice in this conversation in the last few months or a year. I don't know what the perfect solutions are. I just know that at some point you're going to have to say, guys, go out there and play this game faster. I mean, you don't have to walk around looking for this signal. Uh, this guys he's a lot better hitting outside pitches and inside pitches on one, two counts on Tuesday. I mean, that's where the information is. You can actually relay so much information now, uh, but at the same time, it just takes away from the game, the flow of the game. And it's, it's good. I mean, Major League Baseball attendance dropped significantly last year, and it's going to continue to drop, I think, if they don't do something. So I'm glad they're taking it serious.
2: How about telling the batter, you, can, you can't you can step out of the box this many times. The pitcher can't step, up, step off the rubber that many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I know they say there's a time limit when, when they go to replay, but uh, it sure seems like they violate that time limit a lot. It's because they're like the, all the times these officials in college basketball are going to monitors now late in the game. It, that's been really, really frustrating to me, watching some of that go down. And you, you also ice players when you're doing that by stopping, having so much clock stoppage. So to Scott's point, the fact that the commissioner has gotten so hands-on in it, that's a that's a really positive sign, but that baseball union is awfully, is awfully powerful. So, uh, But I hope they finally do something about it, because um, nobody should go to a baseball game and be there for three hours and 20 minutes.
1: So I actually agree with, with both you guys to an extent, which is surprising. Uh, but what I always like from you guys is when you put great content on FloridaGators.com, and I know Scott coming up. This week, you've got a little more on Florida's freshman first baseman. And Chris is going to have some content related to Senior Day for Basketball, which is Wednesday night against LSU, specifically looking at Kavarius Hayes, who obviously is making his presence known here late in the season and in his career. And then next week, we'll be back to talk about all of it. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. While women's basketball has struggled mightily this year overall, Funda Nakasoglu has continued putting up eye-popping numbers and proving her bona fides as one of the best shooters in the league. As the redshirt senior plays her final few college games, we wanted to hear the story of how the Australian ended up in Gainesville, starting from the beginning.
0: So my mom and dad are originally from Turkey. They were born and raised there. Then around 25 to 30 years ago, they moved away from Turkey and they actually went to a few different countries before um, settling in Australia. But um, they just wanted to do something different um, than most people in Turkey at the time. And they said there were a lot of job opportunities in Australia. So they ended up settling there. And that's where I was born and raised my entire life.
1: A lot of people listening to this probably don't know a lot about what it's like in Australia. They, they see it in movies. They hear an accent. They think they know it, Ben. They try and do an impression of an accent, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, right. What is life like in Australia? How does it differ from, from being in the States?
0: Well, it's actually really similar. I mean, as I said before, um, the culture is really relaxed. The culture is similar to the culture here. Um, obviously, we speak the same language. <laughs> um, we just sound a little different. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's really, really relaxed, really just free. Um, people kind of just mind their own business, go about their days. It isn't, okay, everyone has like some perception that it's like really dangerous because of the wild animals that like Australia has, but that is completely false. I mean, mm. yeah, there are wild, dangerous animals, but unless you go out into like the outback, like in the bush, like <laughs> you won't come across any of that. So it's a very safe place as well. <laughs>
1: I'm sure that the tourism bureau will appreciate you clearing that up for people.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. <right>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we know the the hierarchy of American sports, what is it like in Australia? What sports are most popular, especially at the youth levels?
0: Definitely Australian rules football. It's called AFL. Um, that's like the number one sport that everyone plays. Well, Men usually play that, boys, men, whatever, but um now a women's league has started as well, so women are, like, starting to play in that. Um, I would say that's the top. And then there's something called netball, which is like basketball, but you're not allowed to dribble, so it's just huh. passing. Yeah, and you have a rim but no backboard, so that's, like, another big deal in Australia, and that's for women. And then you've got, like, basketball, soccer, tennis, swimming, And cricket. I would say basketball is like the third most popular sport. Maybe rugby as well. You could add rugby into that. But as I said, that's like mostly for men as well. So I mean, basketball is pretty high up there now, but previously it wasn't as such.
1: So basketball being where it was when you were growing up, how did you get into the game? And and when did you discover that you had a, a real knack for it?
0: Like, since I was born, I mean, my dad put a basketball in my hands. Um, I've got, like, pictures of it. Um, He used to make me do, like, dribbling drills and stuff when I was, like, a little toddler. And I used to, like, watch basketball on the daily with him especially. So definitely my dad kind of steered me in that that direction because my mom was actually a volleyball player.
1: Wow.
0: Like, I always ask her why she didn't kind of steer me into the direction of volleyball She always says that your dad, like, got in first, if you know (laughs) what I mean. He kind of just, he stole me away and, like, put me into basketball before I could even think about volleyball. So it was definitely my father, but I also did like growing up in Australia, we just play like every sport that you can because of school and like on the weekends, that's what you do. You kind of go from sport to sport. So I tried out many other sports as well, and I did pretty competitive gymnastics Hmm. till a certain age. But then they told me that I had to focus on either basketball and gymnastics. So I ended up picking basketball.
1: How is the game different in Australia? How does the style differ over there?
0: I mean, I would say it's less athletic and a lot more physical in America. I think the Australian game molds around the European style a lot more as well. I think there's that, and then fundamentals, skill, and like shooting is really highly, I guess, pressed on from a young age in Australia. Whereas I think it's more like athletic ability and physicality here. As for like pace and stuff, I think they're pretty similar. Maybe America could be a little more fast-paced. I
1: would say those things mostly. So how did you make the decision to come all the way to the US for college once you obviously got to a certain level playing basketball and, and knew that was an opportunity you would have?
0: I actually was always kind of thinking about it because of the fact that in Australia, you have to do um, your university degree separate to like playing a sport. There's nothing like college in Australia where you can have the best of both worlds. So I think it was always in the back of my mind. And I'd come on a tour with a team from Australia that they'd put together to kind of like showcase us athletes to coaches over here. I can't remember when, but it was like five or six years ago. But ever since then, like when I found out about it and more Australians were coming over here and kind of getting a degree on a scholarship as well as, you know, playing the sport that they love, I think that's when
1: I really just wanted to go down that path. So what led you to Utah State and, and how much of a culture shock was that when you arrived?
0: It was definitely a culture shock. Um, just because the place that I went, I think from like end to end of the main street, it was like 10 minutes to get to like and then obviously I come from Melbourne City so that's a huge city atmosphere um so that was like completely different because it was so small and like it was a really small college town which I was also not really hadn't been around and then um the Mormon culture I had no idea what Mormons were before I went so (laughs) it was also a learning experience but the way I ended up there, so I played WMBL, which is like their professional league, um, when I was a development player. So I think I was like 16 years old. And I guess two of the, f- um, two of the games were like on the internet or something. And so a friend of a friend, I guess, got in contact with us saying that one of my other teammates was going to Utah State and Um, the coach was interested in me as well so we were going to kind of go as a package deal Mm -hmm. and because i had left it till late because of my year 12 so senior year exams um, I hadn't really like talked to other schools so I kind of was just going to go you know blindly with my other teammate but then turns out my other teammate ended up going to SMU in the last second oh wow so yeah so I didn't really want to change my mind I ended up you know, sticking with my decision and going to Utah State, but I'd never taken, we were planning on taking a visit, but it just never ended up working out with all like my exams and stuff in school. So yeah, I just kind of saw it on the internet and did a bit of research and like talked to the coaches and took a leap of faith.
1: (laughs) So yeah, so you just showed up blindly having never seen it and then you don't have your teammate there you thought you'd have. So (laughs) how did you make that work with, with such a, I mean, the circumstances of not having your teammate with you, you've never seen the place before, Yeah. how how did that work for you?
0: It it was good. My two years there was good because I actually made some really close friends on the team. One of them is practically like my sister now, and her family helped me out a lot as well because they were actually, her grandparents lived in Utah, so we would go visit them like every free weekend that we could. And then her parents would come down from Texas and kind of um, spend time with us, and I think being a pretty independent person before going helped me out a lot as well because I didn't really feel homesick much. And, you know, I was kind of accustomed to different environments. Like I could kind of handle it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really it, it wasn't a hardship, I guess you could say, just because of like the people around me and stuff.
1: So after breaking countless records there through two years, you decide to transfer. So what made you want to make that move and why was Florida the right place for you?
0: Ultimately, I kind of just wanted to test myself out in like a better competitive environment. Like I wanted to play in a higher league against like the best teams, I guess you could say, because I really wanted to actually go to the NCAA tournament and experience that since like I was young. So that was another reason, mm-hmm. but yeah, I ultimately, I just wanted to test myself out in better competition
1: and see how I do. So you make the move, you red shirt. And at the end of your red shirt year, there's a new coaching staff. What were the biggest challenges adjusting to coach Cam and the new group of coaches that were coming in when you got a chance to start playing?
0: I think coach Butler and coach Cam have completely different styles of play and like completely different ways of coaching. So I think just trying to get used to, you know, a, a completely different coaching staff and they were obviously new. I think we just needed to kind of get comfortable around them and kind of trust what they had to bring here and um start believing in their process and the way they wanted to do things instead of um just dwell on the past and dwell on what the old staff wanted out
1: of us, I guess. Mm-hmm. So in 2016 and 2018, you had a chance to compete internationally with the Turkish national team. You mentioned that's where your parents were from. So how did you decide to play for Turkey as opposed to Australia? And what were those experiences like for you?
0: Australia, to be honest, never really went after me. I guess the national team, even in juniors, I would never really participate in any of their things. I would always compete for my state teams, but never for like the national team. So when You know, the coach from Turkey reached out to me. I wasn't going to, you know, wait on Australia or think, you know, whether or not I should say no to Turkey. I just wanted to take, you know, whatever opportunity came forth. So, And I had been following the Turkish national team since I was young as well, because obviously my parents and like I had tried going back to Turkey for holidays every two years um, throughout my childhood. So I knew a lot about them as well. I knew they played at a really high level. Um, I knew a lot of the girls on that team looked up to them. So when I got, you know, the call from that, it was amazing and an awesome eye-opening experience. Um, just getting to play against, you know, some of the best plays in the world, it really helped me grow um, mentally, physically, everything. It, you know, taught me a lot about basketball and even what to look forward to. To and what to know about you know the future if I want to become you know a professional basketball player. It was just awesome, yeah.
1: Well, I know you got to play all over the world with the national team as well. So, what were your favorite places to visit and why?
0: Um, we went to Slovenia for like a training camp. Actually, both years that I was a part of their team, it was like a twelve day training camp, and it was really it was difficult. But the place that we stayed is in Ljubljana somewhere and it was like a really nice small outdoorsy place with like lots of mountains and there's just a lot of touristic things to do so when we weren't practicing or playing um, you know friendly games against other countries we would go out and just explore and like see their culture and learn about that so that was a great experience for sure. Then we also went to Canada, I actually got sick in Canada, so I couldn't play, you know, the two games that they played. That was a cool experience as well. And it was kind of like a lot like America. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt at home there when we went. Those two are the thing, you know, the main ones that kind of jump out in my head.
1: I would imagine your background and your experience give you a certain level of maturity relative to other college students, especially student athletes. So in what ways have you been able to help some of your younger teammates during your time?
0: I just try to be the leader that they want me to be, um, the coaches. And I know that I kind of have to bring that role into this team because we are so young and you could say inexperience at times. I try to tell them, like I think sometimes people forget to absorb the information rather than kind of just think we as individuals know more than we do so just being like around the Turkish national team this summer I learned to absorb whatever they were throwing at me and I think that helped me out a lot so I'm just trying to tell some of the girls here especially to you know kind of listen to what people are telling them and absorb it because it'll make them better in the end and it'll help them out when they're struggling or even when you know we're going through success so yeah
1: I read that you have a love for cooking shows and are something of an amateur (laughs) chef yourself. So what are some of your most successful and also least successful dishes?
0: To be honest, (laughs) I actually haven't been cooking that much here because we get all our food provided for us. (laughs) But I do have a love for food and it's really bad. Um, (laughs) I love all kinds of desserts and the girl that I, one of the girls that I live with She's softballer Kelly Barnhill, mm-hmm. a fantastic baker. Hmm. It's pretty bad for me and my other roommate because all we come home to on the weekends is like cupcakes and cakes and all sorts of desserts. <laughs> so we kind of just take her desserts instead of cooking them ourselves. But I used to love cooking shows. I'd watch them all day when I'd come home from school and kind of drool over them. But haven't been cooking as of as of late.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Outside of that, you do seem to have a lot of uh, diverse interests outside of basketball. So what else do you enjoy doing in your free time?
0: I like obviously hanging out with my friends. Um, I love going to the beach, except, you know, we don't have too much time to do that at the moment. So when when we're in like holiday periods um, or like summer, I love doing that. Um, I like shopping and just going and seeing different places, I guess you could say.
1: So traveling. How often do you get to go home to Australia? And, and what do you do to entertain yourself on those extremely long flights? What is it? 18 <laughs> hours? Is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, from door to door, it's probably 20 plus hours, oh, but man. it's it's too long. Yeah. So I usually only get to go home during the summer because otherwise, you know, by the time I got back home, I'd have to get back on a Plane and come right back. So there would be no point, sure. especially during like Christmas time or whatnot. But summers are usually the time I get to go back home. And then on the plane, I'm I can't sleep on planes, which <laughs> sucks because I need to be like lying down. Right. Unfortunately, I don't I don't have that much money to get myself a business class <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have the luxury of those beds. Um, so I just kind of watch the TVs and watch movies and try to. You know, past time watching movies, watching things like that. Yeah.
1: One of the things I was really curious to ask you about (laughs) is how frequently people pronounce your name correctly. (laughs) And then on the flip side, which I'm sure is more often, the strangest ways you've heard your name pronounced before.
0: I mean, I do get, yeah, a lot of mistaken name calls, you could say. I mean, many people say Funda instead of Funda. Mm -hmm. And then people sometimes just don't even try my last name. Which. (laughs) Which I understand, but, like, it's not as scary as it looks, I swear. It's kind of, like, self-explanatory if you sound the letters out. Right. So, once I, like, teach them how to say it, they don't have that much trouble with it. (laughs) But they just got to, I think they just got to get over the first
1: look of it. What's the worst anybody's butchered your name before?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, actually. Like, Nakasogi or something like that. (laughs) Something like that, yeah.
1: But for the record, it is Funda Nakasoglu, correct? Perfect, Okay, yes. thank you. That's it. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so coming up is senior day. Yeah. Uh, and as you reflect back on your career and, and what you've done in college, what memories stand out the most?
0: I think one of the memories would be last year when we beat Oklahoma um, at their place. That was a huge just memory, good feeling, amazing time. Cause we were literally underdogs and we all believed in it, obviously. But to beat them, I think in the end by like 20 was crazy. And that was just an awesome experience for sure. I think we all really came together as a team after that. And cause it was one of the first few non conference games. I think that like that helped us during the next part of our season. But other memories is just, I think just the overall experience I've had on this campus, like outside of basketball as well. I just love the school and I love the college community and the atmosphere that it brings and just the different things that come with, you know, being a student athlete, because it's just so different to anything in Australia. You know, some of it is really like what They show in movies and stuff, which is awesome to experience. And, you know, when my friends from home call me and ask me how it is or what it's like, I can, like, tell them and they get really excited and, you know, wish they kind of got that experience as well. So I think it's just everything integrated into
1: each other. Final question for you. You've already got your degree, your undergraduate degree in economics, and now you're in grad school. So what's next for you after the season and semester are over? Do you know? Are you going to leave? Do you stay here? Where are you at on that?
0: Well, I think I have to, um, because I came late because of the national team stuff, I think I have to extend my master's out till August. I'm not 100% sure about that, so I have to talk to my academic advisor. But after that is a good question. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Um, But I mean, if an opportunity to play professional basketball came about, I would definitely try to take that on. Otherwise you know, I would probably return to Australia and see what other opportunities were there with work or whatnot.
1: Well, it certainly seems like you've made the most of your opportunity here in the States and at the University of Florida. So thank you so much for your time and and good luck the rest of the way.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. It's another big weekend on campus, with baseball hosting Winthrop and men's basketball looking to cage the Bulldogs. So head over to FloridaGators.com for all the info, and come back next week as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the o